job today. Some awesome songs. And I wanted to, uh, I want to also do a, a shameless little plug for our church app. If you do not have it or you do not use it, shame on you. Uh, I put so much time and energy into it and I feel personally offended that you would not use the app on a daily, hourly basis. Uh, but the, the benefit is the Women's Day registration is live on our church app. If you are curious about our calendars for the preteens, uh, teens, all that is on the church app as well. If you're studying the Bible with somebody, we have our study series uploaded onto the church app as well. So there are a lot of great features there. That is my shameless plug. I'm done. All right. And if you are good at that, please come talk to me or would like to learn how to do that. I'd be happy to teach you the little that I know. Um, all right. So we have been doing a, uh, a series to start the year. If you're visiting with us called Greater Love. And the focus of this series is about Jesus loving the poor. And it has been it has been great so far. But I want to actually open up here. I want to start off our service together by asking how some of you felt about some of the topics, the things that we've covered, or just in general, the focus on Jesus and the poor so far. Let me get some feedback to start off. Mm. Quiet. Come on, this is, this is, just how have you felt about talking about Jesus and the poor? Have you been excited about it? Have you been like, man, this is awesome. I love that we're serving. Has it been like, man, this is super convicting. I don't even want to raise my hand right now. What, whatever. Blanca. Okay, so it's opened up your perspective a little bit more. I saw another hand right over here. Okay, Chris. Sure. Right. Okay, amen. In the back, is that Moses? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's helpful to see. Man, I've, we've really been taken care of and blessed. Did I see one? Beth, is that you? Okay. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. I think, uh, I'll just share it with me personally. I think, number one, it's been very exciting. This has been very different. To start the year talking about serving the poor and needy, I don't know that I, I in, my, in my lifetime being at church, that we've ever kicked off the year with that kind of a focus. And so, in one sense, I've been really excited, but it's also been incredibly revealing to me how much that this is not in my spiritual muscle memory yet. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, if you remember, but a couple weeks ago, Scott asked, what have you done personally for the poor since the Martin Luther King project that we had all together? And I was a little bit like, oh, uh, not much. And I'm the minister. I'm supposed to be preaching on this topic. And I think, and it's not that I don't want to or that I don't have a heart for this, but I think it just, it has shown me how when I'm not deliberate about this, it is not necessarily in my nature just to think about it and look for opportunities. I was, I was out praying this morning and, and I was thinking about how I, I, haven't, I haven't really prayed for God to give me opportunities to serve. And that was a little embarrassing for me. 
But I think it's, it's been, I think it shows me though how much we need this. How much I need this. The focus on loving people who are, uh, who are needy. And really at the same time too, that this is the heart of Jesus. And if I'm walking and imitating Jesus, then this has to be a part of my heart and my thinking. And so we're going to continue on with this series today. If you're taking notes, which I'm sure all of you are. The title for our sermon, oh, that went way too far, is Willing Hands. I'm going to say a word of prayer here and we're going to jump in. God, I do just want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to, uh, to, to learn from Jesus' heart to love the needy. God, I know that, that all, of us, all of us know we should do this. All of us uh, know that this is a good thing. It's noble. And, and I believe that everybody in here wants to do this, God, but I know we need so much help to really connect with the heart of Jesus through all of this, God. And I pray that you really help us to be humble before your scriptures, humble before your son, and, and I pray that you'll speak through me today. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this, this sermon today was born out of a statement of Jesus being with the poor. And, uh, and what's important about this is this isn't just Jesus was near them or around them or Jesus just kind of dropped coins in somebody's, in somebody's purse as he was walking by one day. Jesus was with people. He was in the trenches. He spent time with the needy. He spent time with people who are hurting and, uh, and got to know their life. He inserted himself into their life. And I think it's a humbling thing because even, you know, uh, we just made blessing bags this last uh, midweek with our, um, with our family group. And I love doing that. But it can be easy then even just after doing that just to go, okay, I'll roll down my window and here you go. Great day. God bless you. And that's it. And that Jesus always took things further into inserting himself into people's lives. You know, I'm not saying don't do that or don't give money and stuff where you can, but there's a deeper level of this that we really want to understand. Um, and if we're really going to imitate Jesus, we have to be willing to be in the trenches with people the way that he was. Amen? So my first point with this, again, for all you great note takers, I've got three points today. First one is inconvenient love. Uh, I was studying through the Gospels with this. I literally just, just kind of tore through mainly Matthew and John, looking at every example I could find of Jesus engaging with the poor. And what I find when we look through the Gospels, what we can find there is that uh, Jesus meeting the needs of the poor wasn't something that he was really seeking out. Like he wasn't just walking around looking for people that were needy. Most of the time, most of the stories that even we remember about Jesus doing miracles with people, they were things that just happened to him as he was on the way to do something else. Some of the most incredible stories in the Gospels wasn't Jesus going, man, let me go find a blind guy and see if I can fix him. It was Jesus was on his way to somewhere and somebody shows up. And I want to show you a couple examples of this. In John 9 verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. We're going to elaborate on this scripture a little bit more later. But uh, uh, again, he was on his way somewhere, and there happened to be the guy. John 5, 1 through 6. It says, as Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, so he's in town, again, not looking to necessarily meet the needs of people. He's there for a festival. And while he's there, he noticed all these sick people laying by the pool of Bethesda, 
And when Jesus saw the paralytic lying there was when he went over to help. Matthew 9, 18 through 20. Says, uh, this is when the, the Roman centurion came to him and said, hey, my daughter's dead. I need your help. So it says, Jesus got up and went with him. And so did his disciples. And it says, just then, as he's on his way to go meet a need, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and grabs his cloak. And he stopped to take care of her for a second on the way to meet another need. Mark 10, 46. Jesus and his disciples, they got a huge crowd with them as they were leaving the city, it says a blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. He sees him. He says, Jesus, have, or he hears that they're nearby. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So these are just four examples. That time and time again, Jesus was doing something. And then there happened to be somebody with a need. But what's amazing is that even in that example, he stops. He's got a whole crowd of people to take care of. He stops helping them. To go help this one man calling out for him. And there's one story, though, that really, really gets me. In Matthew 14. So this is just after Jesus got the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And healed their sick. Now, I don't know how you feel reading this passage, but this, this passage bothers me a little bit. It bothers me on a number of different levels. Jesus had just gotten word that his cousin John the Baptist had been killed. And killed for standing up for righteousness. For an arrogant punk of a king that didn't have enough backbone. And this was incredibly significant. You imagine how any of us who have lost somebody recently in your family, how you felt when you got that news. Right? So this is his cousin. But not only was John the Baptist his cousin, just before this, he had had this whole discourse with his disciples saying, man, there has been no man ever born to a woman like John the Baptist. He was special. Matter of fact, for Jesus personally, I think this is a big deal because I think John the Baptist was one of the only men alive who really understood who he was and what he was there for. So not only was this his family member, this might have been the only person on earth at the time that really understood the gravity of what Jesus was there to do. So you imagine the loss and the pain that he felt. And so naturally, when he gets word of this, what does he do? He says, man, I want to just go be alone for a little bit. I need to go get some time to be with God, to pray, to mourn. And part of what bugs me about this passage, it says, hearing of this, hearing that Jesus went to go be alone, to go mourn his cousin, a bunch of selfish people (laughs) followed him on foot. Because their needs were more important than where Jesus was at. Now, I'm saying this, obviously, from my cynical side. But that's how I can feel reading this passage. Like, can't you just get a break for a little bit? But what makes this so amazing is that even in spite of everything that Jesus was going through at the time, when he looks at the crowd, he doesn't go, can you guys just get out of here and leave me be? Which is what I would have done. Probably what 90% of us would have done. It says he had compassion on them. 
and healed their sick. And this word shows up several times in the Gospels. The word compassion. And I've talked about this before in past sermons. It shows up when, when Jesus saw the crowds. It says he had compassion on them, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So you probably remember this word. But the Greek word for compassion is a special one called splanknitsomai. It's a funny one to say. Try it. Try it. Splanknitsomai. You can even do it with a little if you want to. Splanknitsomai. I just spit on my Bible. Um, so, and what this word means, it's a Greek word that means to feel it in your bowels. It means that when he looked at the crowds, what he felt was he felt sick to his stomach. He felt pain. In spite of all the things that he was feeling in his own mourning and his own loss, what he saw in the crowds was, these people really need me. Probably they have needs that, I can only, that I'm the only one that they can meet. And this is one of the things that is hardest for me. When I'm deliberate about wanting to help people, I tend to get excited, right? You know, I don't know if you're like me. Like, you hear like, oh, we're going to serve the poor. Like, all right, cool, what can I do? And I look for opportunities. But when I'm going about my normal day, let alone a day like that, where there's a lot going on, this is not on my heart. This is the furthest thing from my mind. I look more at where I'm going and what I'm supposed to do next. But the heart of Jesus was to be inconvenienced. Why? Because he had compassion. Because when he saw the people that were standing before him, maybe think about the person that's sitting on the side of the road holding a sign and you're trying not to make eye contact. I know that I'm not the only one who does this. When you feel guilty, when you're feeling busy and you see the person there and you're just like, oh, I just hope that they don't notice that I'm, that I'm here. What's down here in my, my little center console that I can pretend to play with? You know, like, again, I know I'm not the only one here. Quit judging me. The Lord sees your heart too. But my nature is not to be inconvenienced. My nature is I'll serve when, it's, when, it's, when I planned it, when I'm ready. But to have the heart of Jesus, to be willing to be loved, to willing to love, to be willing to be in the trenches, as even Scott kind of brought up the example of him having to pull over to help the person that blew out their tire, it means being willing to be inconvenienced and pushed off of your normal schedule. Point number two, along with this, a compassionate touch. Now, I really wrestled with the title of this point because the word touch is kind of one of those funny words and it can ignite a lot of thoughts and feelings for different people. I even, I even looked for synonyms. I was like scouring the internet. Can I say any other word other than touch because I don't want anybody to get weirded out? I looked at the Greek to see if it had any other interpretations, even searched Google for sermon titles and points that could illustrate it better, but nothing could quite do it. So here we are. And once we get to the scripture, you'll know what I mean. Turn over to Mark chapter 1 real quick. Starting in verse 40. It says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And actually, some of the older NIV versions, yours might say this. Instead of saying Jesus was indignant, it says Jesus felt compassion for the man. So, but this is a familiar sight, okay? Jesus encountered a lot of people with leprosy throughout his, throughout his tenure uh, preaching the gospel. Um, and he, even in Matthew 10, when he sends out the 12, one of the things he actually tells them to do is he says, I'm sending you out to go cleanse people of leprosy. This was a big thing. I'm going to elaborate on this here in just a minute. Because to understand the significance of this, we have to understand a little bit about leprosy in the first century. This is a big deal. All right? So there's a couple of things I want to point out with this. Leprosy at the time was, called, was considered the living death. It was, worth, it was worse than getting something that you knew for sure was going to kill you. Because there were two types. One of them was, was more fatal. The other one would just mean you were infected basically forever. And actually, um, you would get these tumors and scales kind of on your skin and stuff. They said that even the incubation period could be 20 years for half of the types of leprosy. But it may, and, and, and the other side of it too, I think we kind of think leprosy, and if you think of something that's going to kill you, it wouldn't necessarily kill you. And if it didn't kill you, you'd be permanently disfigured for the rest of your life. The other side of it is you'd be labeled unclean. If you got leprosy, this meant that you were unclean. This was a physical thing, but also a spiritual thing. That physically, obviously, if you had a skin disease like that, you were very infectious. And so you couldn't, they had a bunch of latex gloves or great antibiotics in the first century. So you couldn't be near somebody that had that because you might catch it. But the other side of it is it was spiritual. A lot of times in the first century, if you got sick like this, the first thought going through somebody's head was you were in sin. Or somebody you love, your parents, were in sin, and that's why God is punishing you with this disease. So you can imagine how you would feel about yourself to know that you got this disease that you don't even know where it came from, but thinking this is a punishment from God to be inflicted with. And any person that would accidentally even touch a leper would have to be spiritually cleansed in the temple. To take it a step further, in Leviticus 13.45, it says, if you were a leper, you had to wear clothes that were torn. You had to have your hair, your hair unkempt and keep your face down. And if anybody came near you, you had to shout, unclean, unclean. That was your existence with leprosy. The Talmud actually says you couldn't be within six feet of anybody or 150 feet if the wind was blowing. So what that meant was you either lived completely alone. Oh, went a step further. You got the idea. All right, Richard, can you catch me up there? Either you lived completely alone or you had to live in a leper colony. And actually, the more stuff that I read that actually suggested this was very, very common. 
There were lots of leper colonies in the first century. Just because, imagine something that infectious. If you got it, you just, you just, they just said, okay, just get out of town and you guys just go stay together out in the wilderness. So your whole existence was either loneliness or living with other people that were possibly dying like you. So imagine for a moment how you feel about life. You have to see any normal, healthy person and just say, no, don't come here, I'm unclean, stay away from me. And you could be stoned if you didn't. And so for this man to run up to Jesus, this was a gamble. This was a gamble on his own life. He could have been stoned to death for even being close to him at all. Consider the desperation that this man felt to be willing to risk this. Think of what his life was like. That basically, for him, the hope of help from Jesus was worth the risk of death because of the state of where his life was at. But the awesome thing about this story isn't isn't the craziness of the leprosy. It's what Jesus was willing to do to respond to this. It says he starts by being filled with compassion. But then Jesus does something even more incredible. He doesn't just heal him, which we know he did from a distance oftentimes. He just would say, all right, look, your faith has healed you. Go. You've been made well. But he actually physically reaches out his hand to touch the man. He could have just said the words, you're healed. But Jesus chose in this moment, full of compassion, to physically reach out and put his hand on this man in front of everybody around. This is not insignificant. I know I kind of cheated a little bit. But these are some pictures of leprosy today. It's pretty gruesome. Not sarcastic here at all, but I want you to think to yourself, how many of you would feel safe touching somebody that looks like that? I don't. I wouldn't feel good about it. I've actually got a story when I was in college. I was trying to put some of this stuff into practice, and I met this man on the street and was, was just trying to talk to him and get to know his story. We talked for a little bit. I got him some food, and we were, we were chatting. And at the end of it, he asked to shake my hand and, and, uh, and send me on my way. And as we're, like, closing our time together, he told me that he had scabies. And immediately as I'm pulling my hand away from him, all of these horrible thoughts start going through my head. That would have been information to know before you asked to shake my hand. And I literally thought of this story as I was walking away, because I'm looking at my hand going, don't touch anything else with this, because I don't want to get scabies. But literally thought to myself, okay, look, if Jesus was willing to touch a leper, then I've got to be willing to touch somebody with scabies. And trust that God's going to take care of whatever happens next. But I love this. And I, and I was thinking about this. Instead of just doing this miracle, I believe there's three reasons why Jesus reached, reached out to touch him. Okay? First of all, it's to show him an even better form of compassionate love. There are so many studies about the power that physical touch can mean to somebody that's in recovery of something. This man had not been touched by anyone, more than likely, for a very long time. 
And here's a man who loved him enough to reach out and physically touch him in front of others. You know, my dad has a story from back when I was a kid that there was a guy that they were studying the Bible with that had AIDS. And this was, this was in the early 90s, back when, I mean, we all, any of you guys that were around back then remember the Magic Johnson scares and just the, 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 the pandemonia surrounding getting AIDS and the lack of understanding about it. And he let this man hold, it was either me or my brother, when I was a kid, he said the man just started crying. Because at that time, everybody thought it was a death sentence for you to touch somebody with AIDS. And the mere fact that he would let him touch his children just meant the world to him. And I think that's part of why Jesus reached out to touch this man. The second reason is to demonstrate God's power. That God's power is greater than anything and any disease out there. Jesus could physically touch him and not get sick, and that's pretty awesome. But I think third and maybe most important, he wanted to change the way that everybody around him thought about God's power. And what loving the needy should look like for everybody else that was watching. And that leads to our third and final point. A mind change. As I was studying, through, studying this in the Gospels, something started to pop out at me in the stories that I was reading about Jesus. There were not really a lot of stories about Jesus exclusively helping poor people as we would understand it. There's not a lot of stories. Like if, you, if you even think about for a minute the Gospels and the stories that you think of Jesus helping people, there's probably not a story that comes to mind of Jesus helping somebody that was just homeless. Right? Like he observed the widow putting her two copper coins in, into the, the collection plate. And he fed the 5,000, which some people suggest the reason why, you know, later on Jesus rebuked the crowd. He said, the reason why you're here is not because of my teaching, but it's because I fed you. So we could assume that a lot of them were poor. But there's not really many stories of that. To look at how Jesus really walked among the poor we really have to look at how Jesus walked among the, dis- the sick and disabled. Because the poor people of the first century were in large part sick or disabled. So all the stories that we're familiar with, the blind, the blind people, the lepers, all that stuff, that's Jesus helping the poor. Does that make sense? Because there were no government programs. There were no shelters. There were no hospitals. There was nothing in the first century for these people to do. So if they got sick or they got a disability and nobody was willing to take care of them, they just said, out on the street you go, good luck. But also some of this was was in large part due to the way that the sick and disabled were viewed. Turn your Bible to John 9. Still with me? All right, so I've got it up on the board here, but we're going to, uh, this first, the first two verses, so I want to point something out here. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this is an important thing to grab onto here. The first thing that went through the disciples, and remember, these are the spiritual people, these aren't just the Pharisees, these are the ones that are trying to imitate Jesus, 
right? They see a man in need, a man born blind, begging on the side of the road, and their first thought isn't, man, we should help him. The first thought is, who sinned? Whose fault is it that this guy is on the road begging? Was it his? Or was it his parents? Matter of fact, later on in verse 34, when the Pharisees, after the whole miracle happens that we're going to read about in just a minute, after the miracle happens, the Pharisees come to question the man, and this is what they even tell him with this. Their reply to him being healed of his, of his blindness is, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Think about that kind of a world where for you to have an ailment that you had no control over meant everybody around you said you were in sin. That's why you're blind. That's the, that's the environment that this guy grew up in. And unknowingly, I can kind of go through a similar process when I see needy people sometimes. I want you to think about for a moment, for you, what goes through your mind when you see someone who's homeless? The questions you ask yourself. The things you wonder maybe about the way that they look, about the sign that they're carrying. You know, if they have a dog or a kid with them. Like, I'm, I'm being serious. I want you to think about this for a second. What goes through your mind? Because what goes through mind is, is this sincere? Are they, are they doing this to scam everybody into just giving them tax-free money? Now, if you're like me, you've probably researched some of the stories of the people that do stuff like that. Are they in this place because they're an addict? Did they just screw up their lives so much that they're on the street uh, and it's their fault? Because they got into drugs, they got into alcohol, and now they're on the street begging. And why should I support that? By giving them money. And again, I know I'm not the only one that thinks about these things. That our nature as human beings is to look at someone in need. Forget just the homeless. You can look at anybody in need and kind of go through this process of what led up to this and kind of trying to figure out where to ascribe fault. Right? Because something happened to lead this person to this situation that they're in. When I was in, uh, one time we had the benefit of being able to go and take a cruise several years ago, the only cruise I've ever been on. But one of the stops was in, was in Ensenada. And they kept telling us on the boat, look, when you get off the boat, there's going to be a bunch of people waiting for you. There's going to be a bunch of people panhandling. There's going to be kids trying to sell you gum. Don't give them money. Don't give them money because it's a scam. These people are just going to take your money. Parents will keep their kids out of school deliberately to get them to go panhandle to tourists instead of allowing them to get an education. So don't give them anything. And so it was weird. I kind of felt myself even kind of building up this like this kind of something against these people that I was not even that I hadn't even met yet. Then I get outside and I see this this old lady waiting at the end of the docks and stuff, and she was sitting there with a cup quietly, and I was like, okay, I'll, you know, put some money in there, put some money in there. She takes it right out, pockets it, and then starts shaking her cup again. I was like, dude, she totally is pulling a scam right now. 
trying to pretend that there's nothing in her cup or only a couple coins in her cup and pocket my money so that somebody else puts more in. I get you. I see what you're doing. And then, right, and then we turn the corner and sure enough, there's the kids there. Quieres chicle? Quieres chicle? You know? Or trying to sell the little like turtles, little wooden turtles and stuff like that. Like, like how can I get money out of these people? And I find myself just like even wanting to like, like I'm not giving money to these kids. How dare these parents treat their kids like this? But this is totally where our minds go. And maybe you're more spiritual than me. God bless you. Teach me your ways. Okay? But I want to I show what Jesus does with this in verse 3. Let's pick up there. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm, on, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. This isn't always great how creative Jesus gets with his healings. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some money and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Let's stop there. So Jesus was saying here, look, this situation, this guy, this is not about assigning fault. This is not about looking for the Why? This, my, this whole thing happened, this man that was born blind, this happened to demonstrate the love and power of God through this man in need. Yeah. Jesus inserted himself into people's lives to show God's love and to help change the thinking of the people that he was around. Even if there was a reason that this man born blind, was born blind, it didn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point wasn't, whose fault is it? When it comes to helping people in need, to giving money to a homeless person, it doesn't matter the why. Will you help? Will you show the love and the power of God, regardless of their story? This man had been disregarded. Later on in the story, when it says that they're talking to the neighbors and stuff, it says that that people knew who he was. Like, he was familiar. He was the guy. He was the blind guy on the side of the street. He had neighbors. As a matter of fact, later on, it says the Pharisees were questioning. They questioned his parents. So he had parents still. And they knew he was out on the street begging. That raises, I don't know about you, but that raises some questions to me. That he had parents. They lived nearby. They knew where he was. And they still let him be on the road begging. But regardless, again, it doesn't matter. Jesus engaged this man, the people knew, and largely left alone. He made sure to insert himself in front of all these people into this man's life. To love like Jesus, we have to be willing to take a hard look at our thinking. And the biases we carry into loving people. 
and consider how it paints your perception. Because let me tell you, just like this guy, we don't know this person's life. We don't know what led them to where they are. It could have been 100% complete self-sabotage. Who cares? Some of us in here, we are cases of 100% complete self-sabotage that have been saved and redeemed. We ought to ask ourselves, am I withholding the love of God because of my preconceived ideas of this person? Or am I looking for the work of God to be displayed in this person's life? I want to bring up our sister Chantel Mendoza, Chantal, excuse me, to, uh, to share a little bit of her story with you as it relates to this. So I'm uh, grateful to be able to share my story with you today. As we've been starting out um, the year looking at Jesus' love for the poor, this holds a special connection to me because of the way I grew up. I did ask my mother ahead of time if I was able to share, and she said it was okay. (laughs) Um, My mother had a rough childhood caused by her own rebellion. She started drinking and using drugs at an early age. Um, She became pregnant with me while she was a teen, And with no prenatal care and unhealthy choices, she went into preterm labor. Unfortunately, becoming a mother at such a young age didn't stop her from using. My childhood was surrounded with sex, drugs, and alcohol, all from from my mother and the men that were in and out of our lives. I have many many bad memories that have affected me um, to this day. During my younger childhood years, I remember going to six different schools in three years, all because my mother would have to move because she didn't have enough money to pay rent. I remember one time when I was in the first grade, that's me in first grade, um, we had no electricity. So one night, my mom was pouring gasoline into a camping stove on the counter, um, and she did this by candlelight. She had a candle right here, and she was pouring the gasoline into the camping stove. Um, Some of it trailed um, down her arm and onto the candle, and I was just, I was little, so I was trying to look and check things out. And the minute it dripped from her elbow onto the candle, the whole counter lit on fire. And the force of it pushed me back. Um, this all happened within seconds. So it like pushed me back. I turned to run away. My mom was faster. She ran, pushed the chair out of her way, pushed it into my path. And when I was turning and looking, all I could see were flames. And then I tripped over the chair. Somehow, I I don't remember, getting out of the house, somebody had grabbed um, something to put the fire out. We were outside just kind of resting and taking a moment. And they started saying that they could smell burnt hair. And we were, I guess they were all looking at everybody. And then when they focused on me, they realized that my hair had been singed to my ears, my eyebrows, and my um, eyelashes were burnt. They were gone. So I guess what had happened was when the force of the fire like pushed me back and I was looking back at the fire and when I saw flames, that was actually me on fire. And when I tripped over the chair that my mom pushed in my way, it had extinguished the fire. So somehow I was protected. 
I don't know how tripping over a chair can make the fire go out, but it did. Um, I wasn't really self-aware of being poor until I was in middle school. Perhaps that's because at that age, peer pressure sets in. So when I entered seventh grade, my mom married for the third time and moved us to a farming community. We didn't have a lot of money and moved into a single wide trailer that was infested with rats or mice and uh, cockroaches. My mother's husband at the time did make well over 100000 a year, but unfortunately he was a gambler and a user, and my mother was still using at the time. Our rent was only $300 a month, and we still couldn't find, at times we couldn't pay the rent. I remember a teacher asking us what we wanted to have when we were adults. All the other children would say stuff like married with children or the normal responses you get from children. I secretly told myself that I wanted to have enough money for groceries and I wanted to buy simple, something simple like a toothbrush and toothpaste instead of using baking soda and peroxide. There was a time at that time we couldn't even pay for garbage services, so we would throw our garbage in the back of the yard. One fall, um, it was really hard for us, and when there was no more food to eat, my grandma, my mom, and myself grabbed some sackcloth bags, went down to the onion field at night, and collected onions so we could eat. That same fall, my mom would get, um, would get in our car with me, drive out to the roads that the potato trucks would travel on, um, and there were dirt, dirt roads, and um, we would travel down that road, so when the trucks were loaded with potatoes, they would go over bumps and the potatoes would fall out. Um, my mom would drive, I would open my door, and I would pick up potatoes. <laughs> so that fall and winter, we had potatoes and onions to eat. Um, yes, okay. Um, there were a few years where I had to wash our clothes by hand with a washing board, and at times I had to be creative um, with my feminine products. I remember this one time when I was taking off my bed sheets to clean them by hand. I lifted up the sheets and there was um, rat or mouse droppings in my bed. A few years later, I was so sick of being poor and hungry that I talked to my, my mom into having a garden um, so we could have some food. We ended up planting a modest-sized garden for a family of three, um, and I loved it so much. It was my sanctuary. I would just go out there and just sit and look at everything and look at the clouds passing by, and I usually would go out there when my mom and stepdad were fighting um, just to kind of get away. I was so excited to have a garden, but my dreams of a bountiful harvest came to an end when my stepdad, high and angry at my mother, uh, went to the garden, tore everything up, and urinated on it. I was devastated, and I was so angry. And I thought to myself, why doesn't the pain ever kill? If pain physically hurts our heart, shouldn't it kill us? And I believe that anger is a mask for underlying emotions. And I had to learn to protect myself by turning to anger. I got two jobs and started paying for bills, while my mom and stepdad continued to get high and gamble the money. I paid for garbage, water, groceries, car insurance, and anything else that needed to happen. When I was 21, I got married, and four years later, I was getting a divorce, which led me to get an apartment across the street from the Spokane Church. I became a disciple four months later, and things were going pretty well for about a year and a half. I then moved to Portland, and my pride and anger struck up again towards some people in the church, and I soon fell away. Again, my anger wall came up. I compromised all my convictions and started to follow the path my, mom, my mother led. I started using drugs and drinking. I somehow woke up one night after binge drinking and using, looked around at my casita, and realized I had held on to that anger my whole teen life, um, young adulthood life, and into being a disciple. 
I got in contact with a sister who ironically still had the same number, started doing the restoration studies and cleaning my body and my mind. It wasn't until I was restored that I understood my lot in life, understood that God takes us on paths that lead us to him. I didn't know it at the time that God was with me and how he protected me more than I even knew. There is a scripture I found this week when I was trying to find um, something on God being our provider, and I came across Deuteronomy 2.7, which states, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. This is exactly what I was looking for. I didn't know it at the time that when my hair caught on fire, he was really protecting me. Or when we moved to a new place, that he moved us to a farming community so he could provide for us. Or allowing me to go to school and still graduate while getting two jobs and paying bills. As human beings, we need food, shelter, protection, clothes, jobs, money, rest, enjoyment, healthy relationships, peace, identity, and love. And searching for all these things, um, need. All these needs alone can be a very daunting task. At the time, no one really knew what was going on in my life or the things I was wrestling with. Just like the people that are in need around us, we don't know what, what they're going through or the demons that they're wrestling with. Carlos told me that Jesus was, from a poor, um, was poor from a society standpoint, standpoint, but never needy, only needy for God. God not only physically engaged with people in need, but he also lived a life to feel what they felt. It's funny how life can make a circle. I vowed to myself that I would never live in a mobile home or do the stuff my mom did. I did do the stuff my mom did, and I currently live in a mobile home. But because of second chances, I am clean, sober, have an amazing, loving husband, healthy children, a roof over my head, food in my belly, and I am grateful for the journey God has led me on. I have truly been refined and continue to be refined. Thanks. Wow. Um, one of the things I love about Chantal's story there is just like the blind man, uh, all of that was God getting ready to show what his power could really do. We're going to take communion here in just a moment together. But I wanted to connect this, uh, connect this all together here. In Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What I love about, about this, even as we look at the ways that Jesus helped the poor and needy, is that the reality is that Jesus came to walk the path of us as humans. All the things that Chantel des- described about her life says that Jesus experienced everything that we could be tempted with as human beings. Jesus knew what it meant to feel hungry. Jesus knew what it, fe- what it meant to felt need physically. Jesus knew what it meant to have people look at you and assume something about you, warranted or not. And the reason for this is because he wanted to experience our reality, show us how to live righteously in it, 
that it's possible to choose righteousness in a dark and condemned world, but also so that he could be a perfect sacrifice and open up the door for grace. But Jesus also died so that we would love people with real compassion and to have willing hands like he did. To be in the trenches, to physically touch them, to demonstrate God's love and power despite what our preconceived conceptions are of these people. It's inconvenient, it's outside the norm, and it does challenge us. I'm going to close real quick. Sean Wooten is a brother in a, in the, that leads our church in the Ukraine. And I remember when I was in college hearing a lesson that he did, because he was talking about helping the poor and needy. And one of the things that he said, even to be able to start just in a small way, having the, the heart and the hands of Jesus, was to even be able to go beyond, okay, I want to go beyond, if I've got the time, if I've got the ability to go beyond just saying, here's some money, take it, but to be willing to go, how can I help you? What do you need from me? Can I hear your story? It's a simple, simple thing. That is really the beginning of scratching the surface of the heart of Jesus to love people with real compassion. We're going to take our, our communion here together right now. But I want us even as we take this to, to remember that Jesus did experience these things. He felt the poor. He felt all those different things in life so that we could have the opportunity to experience real grace. But that that grace is supposed to be something that we continue to extend to others in need and to be willing to love them like he did. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll take communion. God, I really want to just thank you so much uh, that you're willing to send Jesus uh, to be the perfect embodiment of what you desire for us to be. God, to, to... live like he did and to love like he did, God, to look beyond the surface or even the reasons behind people's lives and situations, but to love, uh, to love and to demonstrate your power beyond what, what even society or what we would normally want to do and is com- comfortable for us. I thank you that you were willing to live perfectly, to die, to be able to give us grace. And I pray, God, that as we get to take communion right now and meditate on what that grace means to us, that it overflows from us into our hands and into what we do going forward. We love you so much. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.